It says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you might support the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would not see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And Father, we ask that you would help us now as we continue in our worship, as we open the word of God, Lord, would you open our minds, our heart, our soul, our spirit, and the way that's necessary that we might receive the truth of your word and the depth of our heart, Lord, that we would hear what you are speaking to us personally, as individuals and collectively as a congregation of the family of God. Lord, bless your word. May every intent behind why your spirit gave this portion of your word be what we're able to hear and receive in this day and hour as we open it together now as an act of worship towards you. Speak to us by your spirit, Lord, and we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, because we live in a world where there's always the existence of potential dangers in different forms, it's honestly just reasonable and responsible to exercise a degree of caution in life. And of course, when we talk about exercising caution, we're just referring to paying attention and taking care to avoid things like danger or harm or snags or pitfalls or problems, things that can cause personal harm to us or to others that we're connected to. And that same exact thing applies spiritually. We have to exercise caution in the spiritual life as well. We need to take that into consideration because there are certain things as well as certain people that are dangerous in regards to our spiritual life. There are certain things and certain people that can be harmful and problematic for a healthy spiritual existence, both as an individual believer, as well as collectively as a church, as an assembly of God's people. And so we have to stay alert to those things spiritually, and we need to be aware that their harmful influence does exist and that we don't want it to have the effect upon us that would be detrimental. And that's really what Paul is trying to address in this, if you would, kind of second half of this teaching that he's giving to spiritual leaders that we began looking at last week. Remember the backdrop, Paul, knowing this was probably going to be the last time to spend time together with the believers in the area of Asia Minor, particularly the city of Ephesus, where he ministered there for three years, 
uh, it tells us that he kind of gathered together. He called for a meeting with the elders, that is the spiritual leaders of not only probably the church of Ephesus, but most likely maybe even the churches around the area of Asia Minor as well that had been planted as the result of the church initially being established in Ephesus. And we saw, as we looked at last time, Paul's kind of conducting, if you would, kind of this ancient version of a Christian workers or spiritual leaders ministry conference. And he brings them together and he wants to just invest a few more things into them to further equip and train the leaders so they can be most effective in their work for the Lord and their service to the church so that they can help the body of Christ be strong and healthy as leaders. And he's been addressing some important things regarding how to have healthy spiritual influence. And we looked at that last time in verses 17 down through verse 27. And I want to say, whether you were with us last week or not, if you want to learn lessons, valuable lessons on Christian service, on ministry, on how to be an effective Christian worker, a a healthy spiritual leader that's having an impact, those are invaluable verses to familiarize yourself with, to meditate upon, to glean principles from, verses 17 through 27. And now Paul transitions here to talking about warnings of dangerous influences that can have a detrimental or bad or harmful effect upon individual Christians and the church collectively as what we call the body of Christ. So last time he said, look, this is how to be influential. And now he starts to address, beware of these dangerous influences. These are the things that actually can cause harm. He says in verse 28, as he carries on with his message now, he says, verse 28, therefore, he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul here, we're going to see cautions the elders, or as we said, spiritual leaders, the pastors, the leaders within the church he's talking to, of their sacred responsibility to pay attention, he's going to say, both to themselves and their own spiritual condition, as well as to the overall spiritual conditions of the church. And he reminds them kind of here in verse 28 of their sacred duty of their spiritual responsibility in this calling that they received divinely from God to take care of the Lord's people. It says there in verse 28, if you look at it, he says, the Holy Spirit, notice, has made you, he says, overseers, that is, leaders, pastors, elders, those who take care of the Lord's people in that role. Take notice, the Holy Spirit has made you, he says, overseers. In other words, point being implied, it wasn't that they offered their credentials after a solid education and nothing wrong with a solid education. If that's something that God uses as a part of the process to equip someone, they didn't campaign for office for church leadership in some capacity. They weren't voted into that position democratically by the congregation for their role of leadership. They weren't self-appointed leaders. Uh, They weren't self-proclaimed pastors or leaders among the church. They weren't given that role by any human organization per se that endorsed them and gave them the authority to have that position. Rather, they were selected and appointed, Paul says, by the Spirit of God himself. He says the Holy Spirit 
gave you a divine commission. In other words, they were put into that position by heaven's assignment. That it was a spiritual determination by God himself and it was God who directed them to serve in that capacity. God, for his own reasons and his own sovereign choice and purpose, appointed these particular men who were serving in that capacity to be overseers or leaders. It was a divine calling that comes with a spiritual enabling to do that particular function among the church as one who would serve in that capacity. So their appointment was spirit-determined and spirit-directed. And let me say this morning, that is how, folks, it is supposed to be in genuine, proper, biblical spiritual leadership. We've kind of, you know, through this process of time, in some ways, you know, it's kind of almost kind of gradually moved ourselves towards more of a business-like model or a secular model where, okay, you have to do this and that and get these credentials and this education. And again, I don't want to in any way devalue the benefit of education and training. I think that all has its purpose. The Bible tells us not to lay hands on anyone hastily. The Bible tells us that we should prepare. These are important and valuable things. But all of those things cannot be a substitute for divine calling, for God's selection and the Holy Spirit being the one who makes someone, by his determination, a spiritual leader, a elder, a deacon, a pastor, a missionary, a Christian worker. This is an important thing to remember. We saw back in Acts chapter 13 where it said that the Spirit spoke among a church prayer meeting and it was the Spirit who said, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. It was the Spirit who identified and separated Paul and Barnabas for that missionary work, that church planning that they went out and did. Hebrews 5 says, no one takes this honor to himself. He is called by God. That is, it's not something to be taken to uh, oneself in the sense of, oh, I think I'd like to do this or that. I think I would be good at that. But rather, it, it's something that God calls someone to do. And really, they are just submitting to what God has asked them to do in faith, trusting, Lord, out of obedience, if this is what you've called me to do, I'll trust you'll give me the grace to do this and that you'll indicate by your work through my life that this is indeed what you've intended to me. Paul, referring to his own life and ministry, said in 1 Timothy 1 to Timothy, a young minister, he said, the Lord enabled me and put me into the ministry. And that's what we want. We want that biblical model. Paul references it here as he's talking to these spiritual leaders. He said, look, I'm saying all these things to you because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, this is a sacred calling. When a man is made a leader by God, that's a sacred and a serious responsibility to fulfill. Paul's trying to emphasize to them. And that's why he says them here, he says, you are overseers of the flock of God's precious sheep. And the idea of the term overseer there speaks of a role or responsibility to watch over. That's what an overseer does. Someone who watches over and does what's in the best interest and welfare of those put under their care, under their stewardship. An overseer provides direction as needed and supervision. And that's what elders and leaders within the church are supposed to do in their function, to be spiritual overseers. Those who oversee those God puts under their care. And notice also verse 28 says they weren't only overseers, but he says in verse 28 that they were also to shepherd the church of God 
which he purchased with his own blood to shepherd the church. Again, notice the imagery there of a spiritual leader is to function like a shepherd does with a flock of sheep. That's the analogy that God gives. And of course, we understand what shepherds have to do. One of the things shepherds definitely have to do is they need to make sure that they responsibly uh, and, and and really cautiously do whatever's necessary in their diligence and their effort to make sure that they nourish their sheep and make sure that they get them to green pastures so they can be fed and nourished or the sheep won't survive. One of the primary callings of a, of a shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are well fed and nourished for, for their own welfare and for their health and survival. But more than that, shepherds also must tend their sheep. So there's the feeding of the sheep and the feeding of the flock, but then there's also that tending process as well of providing care for the sheep from time to time if they're wounded or there's some issue that arises and you need to give special attention to a particular sheep or to a group of sheep. Sometimes sheep squabble, that does happen. And you got to sort out the problematic issues and help the sheep not to devour one another and to realize, look, that's, that's, that's not what we do. We, we need to stay harmonious as a flock. And there's that whole tending process, again, of just resolving issues that arise, guiding the flock, protecting the flock, helping it to move in the direction that it's supposed to go, that's in the best interest of the sheep. And notice God views his church, those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus, he views his church like a flock of sheep. That's the biblical analogy that God uses, and sheep need care and guidance and nourishment and protection, and these kind of things are the spiritual responsibility, Paul says, of the overseer. The overseers, the leaders, the pastors, the elders are to function like good and faithful shepherds, and to impress the importance of that stewardship and how valuable the flock is unto God. Notice how he describes the flock of God. He says that they're to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Take notice of two things there, that the church, first of all, bears God's identity. It bears God's name. He calls it the church of God. And I think this is an important reminder, not only for spiritual leaders, but for all of us collectively as a part of the church, the family of God, that we realize that the church bears God's name. It bears God's identity. It bears God's reputation. So anything that happens, therefore, among the church, God's reputation gets dragged into that. God's name gets drawn into that because it's the church of God. It, it's his identity that we must always remember that it's something that bears his name directly attached. But also, secondly, take notice the church also belongs to God. Do you see what he says there at the end of verse 28? He says it's the church which he purchased. He's the owner. He purchased it with his own blood. The church does not belong to any man or to an organization. I always get a little awkward even when people say something like your church or they'll say, you know, I'll hear pastors in something, something, my church. And I understand the, you know, the semantics of that, but I just, it, it always still makes me a little bit uneasy. It's the Lord's church. Uh, it's a blood-bought body of Christ. This is the blood-bought bride of Christ. It took the death and the shedding of the blood of God's dearly loved son. He purchased, you and I, he purchased the church, this thing that we're a part of, with his own blood. 
And so therefore, I want to be very careful. We want to be very cautious in how we respond and relate to something that's blood-bought, that was purchased with the blood of Jesus. Uh, And to me, it's such a great travesty, therefore, when I see people sometimes relating to the church in ways that to me are very harmful, dishonorable, disrespectful. It grieves my heart, and more than that, it honestly makes me shudder in fear at times as well, even when I see, and maybe you as well have seen, even spiritual leaders and pastors sometimes who will do things that seem to have no consideration for the welfare of the church, and in a very selfish and self-serving way will behave in ways or do certain things that to me, I mean, you are messing with the blood-bought bride of Jesus, That is not a wise thing to do, to not have reverence for the sacredness, the value of what belongs to God and what he purchased with his own blood. Now, in light of those heavy spiritual realities and responsibilities, that's why he exhorts the elders back at the beginning of verse 28, in light of those heavy things, he says, therefore, he says to the leaders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. It's a warning there to be cautious of not neglecting their role. Uh, Notice the dual responsibility, and you notice the order there. And the order is important, the clear order. The order there of two things. First of all, he says, take heed to yourselves. That's, That's the proper priority. He says, first to the spiritual leaders, take heed to yourselves. That is, take care of yourself. Guard and watch over your own condition, he's saying. Paul, as a spiritual leader, as a more mature minister, he's saying to these leaders, listen, rather than be over caught up with or enamored by or or so concerned about how well you minister, he says, first of all, you need to take heed to your own spiritual life. You need to make sure as a Christian worker, as somebody who serves the Lord, that you don't begin to worship ministry rather than worship Jesus. And we need to be very careful as we serve the Lord and we do things for the Lord and it's a privilege to get to do that. But a Christian worker and especially a spiritual leader has to always maintain their own spiritual life first. That is of top priority, of foremost concern that when we're going to serve the Lord that we have to maintain our own spiritual health first. That means we have to pay attention to our own spiritual condition making sure that we, as a top priority, are staying healthy spiritually in our own relationship with God, making sure we do the things that are necessary to maintain a healthy relationship with God, that we're maintaining a personal devotional life and spending time with Jesus and reading the Bible, not to prepare for Bible studies, but reading the Word of God so that God can talk to us. That we're spending time praying, not because we're praying for everybody else's needs, but that we're just having genuine conversation with God in regards to our own life and walking with him out of love as a son or a daughter of Christ, first and foremost. That we're keeping ourselves as Christian workers or spiritual leaders from any compromise or sin. And ever thinking that somehow, well, we can continue to do what we're doing, but yet we can make a concession here or have some compromise going on in our private life and and beginning to kind of think somehow we can justify bad behavior or sinful behavior and keep doing what we do publicly for the Lord. He says, no, take heed to yourself. Don't let that happen. I think it even pertains as well, taking heed to yourself and your condition, certainly from what I've experienced, of even just maintaining that necessary balance of rest 
from the wear and tear that does come upon you of continually giving yourself to serving people and carrying their burdens and resolving you know, situations and problems and helping people and carrying around the awareness of this struggle and this family problem and this situation and hearing about this and, and, and the wear and tear of that cumulatively, not only just you know, physically, but the time that's devoted, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually, it can be a draining thing as we serve the Lord and serve in different capacities. So we have to make sure to to take care of ourselves because if we don't maintain our own spiritual walk in serving the Lord, we put ourselves at risk for not only harming and sabotaging ourselves, but really becoming very ineffective to actually help other people in a very fruitful way. If we're trying to give out of something that we don't already have, that first crucial responsibility of serving others is always being healthy ourselves, and then out of our own spiritual stability, then we can actually give effectively to other people and serve other people. And look, folks, this doesn't just apply to being a pastor or an elder or a spiritual leader in some way. Certainly it does, but in any capacity in our Christian life, As we seek to serve the Lord, this applies as well. You're never going to effectively be able to parent your children and be a good servant and do to me what is the highest calling of ministry that exists to be a parent and to raise children that know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with Jesus. You'll never be able to do that if you spend so much time consumed with all these other things you're trying to make life about and you don't as a top priority take heed to your own spiritual condition life's exhausting man you had a kid or two or three or five in there forget about it brother you're wiped out right and we find ourselves running and doing this and that and wonder you know why i i just i mean i love my kids but sometimes i don't even know if i like them anymore and just right and we, we find ourselves going through all these crazy things and my encouragement to you is this listen do not ever deviate from your personal time alone and your relationship need of walking with Jesus yourself. Or you will never be able to effectively love your kids and counsel them and train them and have the energy and strength and all that's necessary to cultivate year after year and season after season and situation after situation. You've got to spend time with the Lord. If you want to be the husband God wants you to be, the wife God wants you to be, to minister to your family, to serve in any capacity. And again, I encourage you as husbands and wives, you know, take that into consideration with one another. I remember when our kids were little, you know, Trish and I, you know, I've always been kind of an early morning person and I can't function unless I spend time with the Lord before I see other human beings. I'm just that wretched. Maybe God bless the rest of you, but I've got to talk to the Lord because once I see somebody else, things just start going downhill. So for me, it was always a, I have to be up to function, to be who I'm supposed to be before other people and, and just have time alone with the Lord. But again, you, know, you have the kids and when they're little and all three of them little and life, and she's home with the kids full time and her world, I got to go to work. Her world was crazy, man. Taking care of all this stuff. But we had a very you know, firm conviction that when I would come home, I would say to her, do you feel like you've been able to have had enough time alone with the Lord in the midst of the craziness of this day. And if not, the pause button went down and I took the kids and I said, go spend time alone with the Lord. Just go have some time alone with the Lord and and just sit in the quietness and the solitude for whatever is necessary. And and I just felt very strongly, my wife can't be the mommy that she wants to be 
if she's not able to take heed to herself and have time alone with Jesus. And again, I'm belaboring the subject, but I can't emphasize to you the value of this. So important that you find practical ways to be certainly intentional about this thing. He says, take heed to yourselves, he tells the leaders, and then after you've done that, then he says, secondarily, take heed to the flock. You can be then responsible for the general condition of helping and providing care for other people. So after impressing upon them their sacred duty, he then starts to progress into these warnings beginning in verse 29. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul now notice he's going to start to express concerns that they needed to be cautious about that were dangers that would threaten the flock. He says, verse 29, first of all, for I know this. Paul says, I perceive this. I know this spiritually from experience as well as I discern it. He says, I'm certain this is going to happen and you have to be alert about it. He's saying it's not if it happens, it's a matter of when it happens. He says, I know this is going to take place because it does. The danger from without at times of those who are wolves and dangerous people, he says, coming in, not sparing the flock. Notice he refers to such individuals there, he says, as savage wolves who will come in among you, among the church, not sparing the flock. Again, savage wolves care nothing for a flock of sheep. All they want to do is find access to the flock and devour the sheep for their own self-serving purposes. That's why they're called predators. They're savage wolves. They have only one interest, which is their own self-serving desires and seeking to get access to the sheep to do whatever destructive thing they want to do to harm really for their own benefit. And wolves, as they do in the wilderness, they always exist. Their existence will always be out there. It will always take place. And periodically, wolves will look for inroots into flocks. That's what they do. That's the nature of how they function. So shepherds have to be aware of this, and they have to also guard against allowing wolves to have access to the flock that are under their care. And that's the spiritual analogy among the flock of God here, that some people are savage wolves that are looking for avenues into the church among God's flock to devour, and they have evil, self-serving agendas. It can be somebody who's a false teacher who just wants to introduce some doctrine. It could be somebody who wants to just utilize the avenue of having access to the church because they think, hey, here's a way I can get in and I can take advantage of these people or I can you know, sell my wares or work my marketing plan. I've seen all this kind of stuff. And people look at the, I mean, come on, if, if you're a smart, savage wolf, I mean, the church is a good, pretty good place to prey upon people. All these people love each other and they trust each other and they're giving and all these kind of things, right? So people aren't foolish when they have these kind of agendas. They come in like a savage wolf and they slowly and subtly begin to work things and their intention is just to cause harm or division or hurt in some capacity. Uh, And Paul says, I've tried to guard the flock while I was there, but he's saying to these leaders, look, I know this after my departure. He's saying, please don't be naive. He's telling the leaders, I tried to do my part when I was there, but he says, after my departure, I know it's going to happen. He says, you have to fulfill your charge as a spiritual leader. He says, even as I did to protect the flock from savage wolves who are going to come in from outside and try and devour the flock. And then Paul goes on, verse 30, he says, also, I know this, from among yourselves, 
men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So here in verse 30, Paul now identifies not a problem from without, but you see what he's describing. And now he's talking about occasions when there would be problematic people who arise right from within the church. He said, savage wolves from without will try and make entry and have access to devour the flock. But he says there also at times, sadly, will be men who will rise up right from within, right from within the congregation, who were once a part of the congregation within the church itself. He says they'll arise from within speaking, he says, perverse things, that is taking what's right or true and twisting it, distorting it in some way. That's what perversion is distorting what's proper but notice what their motive is it says there verse 30 it says to draw away the disciples that is the lord's followers to draw such people away after themselves that is to get people in some way to become followers of them to kind of come after them and under their leadership to follow their idea or their plan and teaching and proper things persuading people to kind of draw them off and because such people as paul describes here in verse 30 what they're basically looking for is their own little following they want their own flock and the way they go about pervertedly getting their own flock is they actually among a flock rise up and try and use then their you know relationship connections and their level of influence and those kind of things and they try and utilize that in a perverse way in a very self-serving and unloving way to draw people away hey come follow me and my thing or i mean I, they're doing that but we're doing this new teaching and they don't understand this revelation or these deeper things of god or you know hey we're, we're going to do something different i mean the decisions they're making there are you i mean are you sick and tired of that too and and they use these perverse ways in a very sad and distorted way to manipulate their connection to people and basically just draw them away from a church they're a part of to come under their leadership to kind of go off in this faction or this divisive way and to follow them instead as they kind of go do their new thing and so he says here that these appointed leaders these overseers have to guard against both paying attention that they don't allow a wolf to come in from the outside and mingle among and harm the flock but that they also pay attention if anyone is rising up from within with a perverse motive and doing something in perverse ways to draw away people out of the church after themselves and following look there's a healthy way to go about going out and doing ministry and the way to go about that is not to drag a bunch of people out with you that's called church division that's not healthy that never helps the body of Christ when it's done with a perverse motive. So a shepherd has to not only feed the flock, but Paul's making it very evident here, a shepherd must also warn a flock of prevalent dangers because there are indeed things that are dangerous in life, snares and pitfalls that can cause the flock to get into trouble. And there are folks, as we all know, certain kinds of people that are just not healthy people. And they can greatly mislead us in our spiritual lives. Again, whether it's someone teaching false doctrine or some cult or just an unhealthy person, a wolf, a predator, someone who's trying to deceive people and take advantage. And these kind of things are capable to cause us to err off track in, in ways that are just not good. Not good. And so that's why Paul says, verse 31, therefore, in light of that, watch, he says. And remember, he says, that for three years 
I didn't cease, look at the word there, to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul says, with tears out of concern for your welfare and that you would be okay. It shows Paul's love for the flock. This is the second time he's already mentioned having tears and serving the Lord. The idea is to imply his love for the people is concerned. He says, remember, when I was there for three years, yes, I taught a lot, but he says, I also never ceased to warn everyone to warn from wolves that I thought came within or those who seem to be doing inappropriate things to draw people away. And he just reminds us that it is loving to warn those that we care about. It is loving to do that. When you care about people or they're under your you know, care, it's good to caution people from time to time. That's the responsibility of those who have individuals under our care. So again, whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader in some capacity, whatever it may be, you have a level of influence. He exhorts the leaders here in verse 31. He says, he says, be careful. And he says, watch and warn everyone. That's what I did. And he says, so watch over people and warn them. And if we love people, that's indeed what we want to do. Jesus himself in John uh, Matthew seven fifteen said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus warned people. He said, I love you, so be careful. This is going to be out there. He says, be on guard, be cautious. The New Testament repeatedly cautions against false teachers. Paul in Philippians 3 says it this way, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Paul, did you really say that? You called people dogs? Yeah. Paul said, some people are dogs. You know, I raised my daughters. I told them, listen, from early on, I said, you know, guys are dogs and pigs. I said, I know that because I'm a guy. So we're going to help you find the right one that's been tamed by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit. But in general, most men are dogs and pigs. And then I said, but to keep it fair, most women are rats and snakes. So they each have their mannerisms and, and things. But Paul said, some men, they're just dogs. Beware of them. They're evil workers. There were times where Paul would identify people by name and warn and say, beware of this guy i mean pretty direct in what he would do well having given them these warnings verse 32 he then says so now brethren i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified the word sanctified again that is set apart by god's spirit to be prepared to ultimately be in heaven through their relationship with the Lord. So Paul now turns verse 32 after giving some warnings and he says, listen, I've given you these warnings, but I can't stay around, but I'm turning you over to what will keep you safe. That's what he's doing in verse 32. He says, I commend you. The idea is I commit you to, or I entrust you to. And then he mentions two crucial things, two crucial things that would keep believers safe and stable until they experience their heavenly inheritance that they were sanctified and set apart for. What are they? Paul says, these are the two things I'm committing you over to. He says, first of all, I entrust or I commit you, he says, to God, to God. Because Paul says, I can't be here with you all the time. I, I'm just not going to be able to. God's moving me on. He says, I can't always be with you. But he says, God's presence will always be with you. God will always be available to you and his presence and power and help 
can continually enable you in any way that you need assistance with. He can address any problem that arises. God can identify any unhealthy person, even if I can't, Paul says. If you stay close to God, he says, I'm committing you to God. You're under God's care. God can be with you. God can help you. He's going to stay here with you. And then secondly, Paul says the other thing that would help keep them healthy. He says, I entrust you to God and I also commit you, he says, to the word of his grace. That is the the life-giving grace of the word of God that helps what? As a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path so that we can see clearly in darkness. That gives us discernment of what's good and what's not good. Of what's healthy and what's not healthy. Of who's healthy and who's not healthy. And he says, God himself and the word of God are sufficient. So he says, I'm trusting you to these things because they are able to build you up spiritually, he says. I love Paul's simplicity. Paul genuinely believed in the sufficiency of God's power and presence and the word of God. I mean, amazing. Paul didn't say, listen, here's my suggestion. Get these top three books from the Christian bookstore and I'll keep you updated whenever the new ones come out. And Paul said, no, God and his word are sufficient. They're sufficient for you. Almighty God, by his power and his presence and his Holy Spirit's enablement in your life working and his sufficient, inspired, spirit-breathed word is able to give you the grace that you need to build you up and to keep you strong until you inherit your heavenly experience that you were set apart for. I love how Paul was encouraging them, look, with wisdom, fully depend upon God and his word and you're going to be okay. Because he just kind of gave him some scary news. Wolves and people rising up when they go, whoa, this is... And he says, look, you're going to be okay. You rely on God and you rely on God's word. You depend upon that and you're going to be good. And I just want to say, honestly, we all need to be cautious about this in our spiritual lives and in our Christian service to remember for ourselves and for people that we serve, these are the things that are sufficient for people. God and God's word. That's what's sufficient for people. Honestly, to keep their dependency in the right place. We don't want people, folks, to become overly dependent upon us. Paul says, I can't be here with you. I'm a human being. I can't be with you. Paul didn't even have email accounts and you know phones to call. I'm moving on. But Paul says, look, if you're fully dependent upon God and his word, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You have God and you have his word and Paul put their dependence upon what was proper and our goal, even as we love and serve people, folks, ultimately it's to help people learn how to connect with God and to rely upon God, not upon us. And that can happen sometimes. You know, people begin to develop a dependency upon you and certainly we want to help people and we want to be supportive. But our best endeavor in ministry is to train, teach, help people, bring them along to get them to the place where we get them depending upon God for themselves and depending upon God's word to be sufficient, to counsel them, to guide them, to keep them on track spiritually. That's what we need to do to get people dependent upon God and his word. That is able to build people up and to sustain them as is necessary. So Paul says, verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know, he says, these hands have provided for my necessities and those who are with me. And he says, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, 
that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So in the midst of cautioning them about these wolves and unhealthy people who are preying upon the flock for their own you know, self-serving interests, Paul refers to how he himself, again, by way of example, he says, how he sought to resist that in every way possible and to keep himself guarded against that. Paul, in essence, in these verses is saying here, look, I've sought to keep my motives pure when I was among you. I did everything I could, he says, in staying sensitive to God's spirit to seek to always give out, he said, way more than I ever received. I always tried to give way more of myself and give out way more than I ever received. Notice verse 33, Paul did not see people he ministered to as a way to enrich himself or to make a good living. Paul says, look, I never coveted anyone's silver or gold or their apparel. He says, I didn't have on my heart and mind how I could get money if I ministered to those particular group of people. Or, hey, Ephesus seems like a wealthy city. Maybe that's a good place to plant a church. I mean, that was, that was the furthest thing from Paul's mind. Paul's heart was to come and to give and to minister as his underlying agenda, not get monetary benefit. In fact, as a traveling missionary, and we've seen this before, Paul alludes to it again, as a traveling missionary and church planner, we know that Paul sought to be as self-sufficient most often as possible. As he moved from community to community, and he often, you know, a matter of months or a year here, a year there, was always kind of traveling around. And he says, verse 34, you know, he says, that these hands of mine have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. Paul says, I was willing to do manual work and whatever required as much as possible to take care of myself and supply responsibly. We know Paul worked as a leather worker, as a tent maker. We've seen that and talked about it in our prior chapters in the book of Acts. Yes, there were times when Paul received financial compensation and where Paul received that compensation to give himself in full devotion for times and seasons to dedicated full-time ministry. Paul himself is the one who even in balance writes the New Testament teachings that it is biblical to support, to financially pay and compensate a missionary, a minister, and someone serving in Christian ministry. Yet Paul never had expectations for money. He never demanded anything or kind of gave the impression of what he needed. Paul, that was the furthest thing from his heart. He never sought after it. He never did anything to imply somehow what he was entitled to. His heart was pure. He was a genuine servant. He didn't want to be a burden on people. He always wanted to have that motto as well as notice demonstrate the example that his heart was to give beyond everything else. He says, I've shown you, verse 35, shown you in every way by laboring like this, trying to give and give, he says, that we should support the weak and remember Jesus' words that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul, notice, one of the reasons he resisted the sinful temptation to be self-serving was to set a good example. He wanted to show by his lifestyle and his pattern that it was a good God-honoring thing, he says, to be a hard-working, responsible person that's self-sufficient. That that's God-honoring, Paul says. I was trying to show you, even by my pattern of doing that, to try and take care of my needs as much as possible. More than that, he said, by laboring like this, we also can take care of and support the weak. That is those who genuinely do have a need among us. You know, Ephesians chapter 4 elevates uh, the work purpose and says that our work and labor isn't just to pay our bills or maybe enjoy life a little bit, but Ephesians 4 says it's also to be able to help others. Ephesians 4 says anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, 
but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. So the Bible elevates work for the Christian and says, yeah, we all work, first of all, to pay our bills, to be responsible, and we should do that. That's God-honoring. And then he says, and we can enjoy a, a certain sphere of life. Nothing wrong with that. First Timothy 6 says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. God doesn't demonize enjoying life and having a certain you know, measure of lifestyle of enjoyment. But, but God says also, everything that you have, it's not just to consume. It's also to be able to, hey, that person looks like they have a need. Can I step in? Can I help? Can I bless somebody? And look at the final reminder Paul gives to these Christian workers. He says, remember Jesus' words to us? He says that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Our Lord Jesus represented that with his life, that principle that it's a more blessed thing in God's sight to be a giver than it is to be somebody who's a taker, who's a receiver. And he said, Jesus taught us this. We find that example in Jesus that there's a blessing in being somebody who's looking for ways to give out to people, to help people, to you know, invest in others. And that doesn't just apply with money. Certainly it does, but it doesn't just apply to money. It also you know, it has to do with the time that we dedicate to people. Quite honestly, that's a lot of times the most expensive commodity we all have. The hours of your day and the days, of that's probably more valuable than some of our gold and silver for most of us. Whether it's our efforts or our energies or our help or our service, Jesus, remember it says in John 13, got up and he served humbly the people by washing their feet. And he said, if I, your master and teacher, have done this for you, how much more ought you to do this to one another? And then he said, and blessed are you if you do these things. In other words, Jesus said, if you do these things, you'll actually be blessed. You'll find yourself being blessed by doing those things, of having a, a servant-hearted, sacrificial nature. Paul's establishing a principle here that models Jesus and that should be the ethic and the characterizing mark of us as followers of Christ, that we would be people who are servant-hearted and sacrificial and giving in nature. And I don't know about you, but in our American culture, folks, we all kind of need that reminder because in our culture that we live in, I mean... We are so busy, so preoccupied trying to maintain these standards that a lot of times we're struggling just to keep our own head above water, right? And so we're so busy struggling to keep our own head above water and pay our own bills and do all these things and maintain our lifestyle. A lot of times we become so consumed with doing everything we can to survive, we start to forget about the reality of, am I doing anything in any way to give out of myself to other people, to bless other people? to serve people or am I just in survival road maintain my and a lot of times we can just neglect that and sometimes in our culture as well we can have this mentality where we become so self-focused and self-serving that again we can also make this error of kind of almost living in a manner where we almost feel like everything is just a resource to get for ourselves get what you can get take what you can get receive what you can get is there a freebie somewhere and somehow we forget wait a minute it's also about giving life. Life's also about giving out and looking for ways to invest in other people and help other people. And Jesus says you'll actually be more blessed when you find yourself giving out than when you do just taking in and receiving all the time. Hey, let me pose a question for you this morning. Is it possible that you're a little bit unhappy, maybe even 
discontent and unfulfilled, maybe, and I don't know, I'm just posing a suggestion, maybe, it could be possible that you become a little too accustomed to just acquiring for yourself or always being on the receiving end, and that's what's making you a little bit unblessed. And maybe if you evaluated and got intentional and put a shift in where you look for ways to be intentional about giving out, you might find yourself being a little more blessed, being a little more fulfilled, a little more happy as you find ways to give to others and realize, wow, it it feels good to realize life's bigger than just me. Wow. And there's something very fulfilling and blessing in our lives about that. Well, Paul here makes this emotional goodbye, verse 36 and 38. It says, when he said these things, he knelt down. Imagine this scene must have been beautiful. He knelt down and he prayed with them all. His last act together with them, he leads them in prayer. He says, look, we've been through a lot. We've talked about a lot. And he says, let's just pray. And he drops to his knees. And he says, let's just ask God all the things he's been talking about to help us in these things now. And he just kneels down and he prays together with them as his final act of ministry with them all. And then it says, verse 37, they began to weep freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. I mean, look at the tremendous love, the love that Paul had for them, the love they had for Paul. Such a beautiful scene here. Sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And then after that embrace, before they transitioned, they then accompanied him to the ship. I mean, look at the tremendous love and care. The the bond that existed there, weeping and embracing and hugging as they're going through this transitional process. And can I just say this in connection to that? Folks, that is what Christian life's supposed to be about. That stuff right there. Right there. That love and that relationship and connection and being with one another and supporting one another and assisting one another. And realizing that's what life's really about. That's what life's about. Let us be cautious we do not fall into this dangerous trap where we begin to get preoccupied with the world's mentality that life is about acquiring possessions and the next position or, or all these other things that we can get so caught up in as our top priority. And then when we make that mistake, do you know what we do? We forget about the value of people and relationships and spending time with people and helping people because we're chasing this and chasing that and in so doing we kind of brush aside people because I just I got a lot to do here just right we see that we see that well I'm too busy to talk to my kid give him a phone to preoccupy him a little while or I mean just I'm not trying to be sarcastic I'm just being very real because we're so busy with chasing this and pursuing that and going after all these things, we're forgetting about what's real FaceTime. It's called this, eye to eye, forming bonds and love and relationship and hugging and embracing. And this is what life's about, man. Loving people, having connection to people. Maybe one of the greatest cautions we all need.